Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. How many of you are into buildings? Anybody like buildings? Yeah, a fair few of you. Um, you know, there are lots of buildings across the globe, aren't there? It's a common denominator in just about every... <laughs> we've got people here this morning that make their living by constructing buildings, designing buildings, doing things that are necessary in order for structures to rise and be what they are. But there are buildings of every description all over the world. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. They come in all kinds of architectural designs. They're built for all kinds of purposes. And they're made of different kinds of materials often. Some of them are incredibly old, while others are like very new. Some are like culturally and historically iconic. When you see that building, you know exactly what it is. Think the Empire State Building. Think the Taj Mahal in India. Think Cologne Cathedral in Germany. There are so many historic and iconic buildings like that. We see the image, we recognize it immediately. But some buildings are not necessarily iconic or historic or culturally significant. They're just downright functional. They're built for a purpose, and that's to function in a particular way. Some buildings are of immense value, and others are not. They're simple and not worth very much. What I want to do this morning is I want to speak to you about a building that is unlike any other building that's out there. A building that's unique in its shape and design. A building whose architect is divine. A building whose purpose is eternal. And a building whose material is living stones. And whose importance is unrivaled. And whose value is inestimable. You cannot put a price on it. I want to talk to you about that building this morning. That building is... And some of you have already got there, the smart ones. It's the household of God. It's the temple of God. As we begin this new year, I want to share with you a word that I believe the Lord has been kind of impressing on my spirit over the last month. And wants to impress on all of us from his word as a word to us as a church in 2019. And it's simply this, that we as a people belonging to God, as Chad has reminded us this morning when he shared in the lead up to communion, as a people belonging to God, we are being built together by him and in him. That he wants us in this year, to engage with him in a way perhaps that we've not done before, to engage with him to become what he intends 
that we should be, and that is a place where he lives. We know this is true because he tells us this in his word. And the foundational scripture for this word that I want to share with you today and in the weeks to come is this. It's taken from the book of Ephesians, one of the letters written by Paul the Apostle, and this is what he says in chapter 2, verses 19 and 22. He says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Just as Matthew, as we were reminded this morning, at one point was a foreigner and an alien to God and his kingdom, as we all once were, we are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And here it is. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It is this building that Paul wrote about, not only here in this letter to the Ephesians, but in different ways in all of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, that make up much of the New Testament, he addressed this issue of us being built together in him to become a place where God lives, quite literally, through his spirit. Not metaphorically, but literally, that God lives in the household of God through the presence and person of the Holy Spirit. So on this first Sunday of the new year, I want to talk about, and I will, as I said, in the weeks to come, what it means to be God's household. What it means to be that building that God is building. Because what God is doing for each of us is he is building us together. There is a process going on that we do not want to miss and that God wants us to engage with. And it's his building process so that we become that dwelling that Paul talks about where God lives by his spirit. So what exactly does it mean to be being built together? How do we become that holy temple in the Lord, that place where God lives by his spirit? What is this building God is constructing look like when it's finished? Is it ever finished? And if it is, what does it look like when it's finished? We're going to explore some of those questions over the next four to five weeks. But what I want to do this morning, quite simply, is think about what it means being built together in Him. Because the only way that we are built together in the way that Paul is referring to it here, is in him, in Christ Jesus. Not by joining a religious club, but by the operation of the Holy Spirit, who takes us as a disparate people and brings us together in unity in Christ. 
and actually is in process of building something. God has a construction program going on in every single local church. And this is one of them. So what does it look like when people are engaged in that process that God is orchestrating the building together of a people to be a holy temple that rises in the Lord? That is a place where God is actually dwelling. Well, to answer those questions, what I want to do this morning is I want to go back to the person and the words of Jesus. Because as Paul refers to him here in the passage I just read, he is the chief cornerstone. Everything really emanates from Jesus. Everything rests upon him. He's the rock beneath our feet, right? He's the cornerstone of the church, which is the ground and the pillar of the truth. That's who Jesus is. Jesus teaches us what it truly means in very simple words that he spoke to his disciples. Accompanied with a loving act of humility that I'll talk about in a moment. What it really means to be built together in him and by him. And this is what Jesus said is recorded by John in his gospel in chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. He said this. A new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Not just his disciples then. His disciples now. That means you and me, right? A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must, 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 get the point? Not can if you want to, or when you feel like it, but must love one another. By this, all men, all people, will know that you are my disciples if, if, if you love one another. Those words must and if are right at the core of what Jesus is saying here in terms of our engagement with him and this new command that he's given to us. There's a conditionality here. In these words, Jesus teaches us how in him we are built together in God's holy temple and become that dwelling place for him. And he provides us with a new command, with a unique paradigm, a model, and a clear message. And all of those are connected to this new command that he's given to us, which is that we should love one another as he has loved us. And I want to say to you this morning, as we embrace this new command from Jesus to love one another as he has loved us, both personally and corporately, we will be built together in him in the way that God wants. And his presence will be not only present in our lives, but manifest through our lives, both personally and corporately as a people. And this is something God desires for us. This is what Paul is saying 
with this passage that I just read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. So let's just look at what Jesus says here this morning. The first thing he says in verse 34, in the first part of that verse in John 13, is with reference to a new command. A command that Jesus gave, and it was simply this, love one another. And this statement in the Greek is an emphatic statement. And it's one that, and this is the one place in John's gospel where Jesus uses the term new. As well as in connection to the covenant. But this is a new command that Jesus is giving. Love one another. Now Jesus here, I want to be honest and and as accurate as I can be to the context. Jesus is not speaking here about love for all people. Though he does call us, as it's clear in the word, to love all people. He is referring specifically in this context to the community of believers to those that follow Jesus, to those that make up the body of Christ, to those that are a part of the local expression of that in a church, in a fellowship, in a community of God's people. He was giving his disciples the most important instruction for their life together. Nothing supersedes this command that Jesus gave to his disciples. Nothing. He said, love one another. I'm talking about in connection with being built together as a church. Obviously, I'm aware that Jesus said the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God, lower your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. But in relationship to this idea of being built together as God's people, there is no more command from Jesus of greater importance than that we love one another. This was to be the one distinguishing mark of the newly gathered community of those that follow Jesus. Now, when you read that, and you read back into the Old Testament, you realize that this idea of loving was not a new command in the sense that Israel had been commanded by the Lord in Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And I just alluded to that as being one of the responses that Jesus gave when he, asked what was, he was asked at one point during his earthly ministry, what is the greatest commandment? So it isn't as if God's people Israel in the past weren't commanded to love. They were. The new thing here was the love of Christians that Christians were to have for one another because of great, Christ's great love for them. And the reality that they were now in him. This was the new thing. There was a new identity, a new placement in Christ. A new relationship with God through him. Now Jesus, through his work and his ministry, constructed a temple built of people who enjoyed this new relationship with God Uh, through him, a new relationship also with one another. When we come to Jesus, we don't just have a new relationship with God. We have a new relationship with those that are in God together with us. There's something going on vertically, if you like, but there's also something going on horizontally, right? 
which is why John says in his epistle, it's not in my notes, it's just come to me now, but it's why John said, hey, if you say you, you love God who you can't, uh, you love God who you can't see, but you don't love people that you can, there's something wrong with that equation. So there's a vertical and a horizontal reality here in terms of our relationship with God and with God's people and with one another. We are living stones in that building that God is putting together. God lives in us, among us. He holds us and builds us together. If you love, if you like, if you love, if you love to like, if you like, love is kind of like the mortar that holds those stones together. Kind of an invisible reality that holds those living stones together. Peter captures that. He says this in his first letter. He says, have sincere love for your brothers. Have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. How are we to love one another? Sincerely and with depth from the heart. This is the other great apostle that figures a lot in the book of Acts, Peter. He says, have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. And he goes on to say a few verses later in the following chapter, as you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So, just like him, we are living stones and we are being what? Built into a spiritual house. So what Peter is saying here echoes what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. That God is involved in a building, construction process. He's taking us as living stones, those who now are the recipients of the Spirit of God. And he's building us together into a spiritual house. And do you see there's a direct connection between this in chapter 2 of Peter and what Peter says to the people of God to whom he's writing at the time about the sincere and deep nature of their love. If we're going to be built into a spiritual house where God dwells, then we need to love, we must love one another as Jesus loved us. That's how it happens. Experientially, we're going to be built together when we obey Jesus' command and we love one another. It is that simple. So what does it mean to love one another then in that way? The way that Jesus loved us. The word he speaks here is of a kind of attitude in the first instance. An attitude of God that we have towards one another. An attitude framed by love that binds us together in an unbreakable cord of unity. Now let me t just take a trip down memory lane. Which will be a memory for some of us and others will like... Give me a blank stare because they will not know what I'm talking about. But back in the day, <laughs> there was a guy called Bob Gilman, and he wrote a song, a worship song called Bind Us Together. How many people know that song? Yeah, just a few of us, okay. He actually wrote that song back in 1977. How many people were not born in 1977? Okay. And a lot of you were very young at that time. But there was, yeah, I'm tempted. All right, let me, let me, hey, 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 hey. 
Let me, let me just give you the, the first stanza, the first verse of this song. And if I have the guts, I'll try and sing it. This is how it goes. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Bind us together with love. This is how it goes. If I can remember it. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Bind us together with love. So, I'm auditioning for the worship team. No, they wouldn't have me. Um, but that song, uh, really, there's something about that stanza that speaks to the reality of where we're going here and what Jesus was saying. We are bound together in him and to and with one another through the love of God, which is an inseparable love. Read what, what Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when we're bound together that way as a people, as a local church that are being built up together in him, our unity in him is unbreakable. Obeying Jesus means we relate to one another as God relates to us. We're to have the same loving attitude or the same attitude shaped by love towards each other that God has toward us. Now, sounds easy, doesn't it? We just have to have that same kind of attitude shaped by love and love one another that God has toward us. But there's a problem. And that problem is us. We're human. We're Walt Lance Pitluck, longtime vineyard pastor in California, likes to call sinner saints. Now, the Bible says because we're in Christ, we have a new identity now. We're saints. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 17, if anybody is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. We have a new identity now. We're saints. But we're sinner saints, aren't we? We have that reality that uh, Paul talks about elsewhere in Romans where the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do do. We live with that conflict. We live with that ongoing experiential dichotomy of being sinner saints. We have, in case you've not noticed, egos. We have personalities. We have patterns of behavior. We have defense mechanisms. We have agendas. We have hot buttons that lead to reactions when they get pushed. We have tendencies to self-preservation. We have unrealistic and unfair expectations that we put on other people and then get mad at them when they don't respond and live up to them. And we just have stuff. So we get under one another's skin. We irritate one another. We offend one another. We disappoint one another. We fail one another. Yet God calls us to a process, notwithstanding all of that, as we heard this morning from what Chad, Chad was saying, of being built together in Him. That stuff doesn't phase God. Now, I'm not saying He commends it or endorses it because He doesn't. 
but it doesn't phase him. It doesn't make him give up on us, such as the quality of his love. And he says, the way I love you is the way you're to love one another. And you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but you know what? The reality is, that was Jesus, this is me, he could do that, I can't. Off-ramp. There is no off-ramp from the new command that Jesus gave us to love one another as he's loved us. Remember, you must. Jesus says to us when we say, that's unrealistic, can't do that, really can't happen. He says, no. Yes, you can do it. I've done it. Now you go and do it. That's exactly what he's saying here to his disciples. Jesus took, God took human form, didn't he, in Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Jesus did? And again, this reading this morning that Chad had, and I didn't really even know what he was going to read, fits like hand in glove with this. Because you know what Jesus did when he came? He went out and he looked for the most spiritual people he could find. No, he didn't. What he did was he took the flotsam and jetsam of humanity. That's what Jesus did. The ragtag, egotistical, inconsistent, fearful, weak men and women. And he loved them unconditionally. And through his love, he empowered them to become something else. To become living stones in his spiritual house. That's what Jesus did. They became then what he desired for them to be, what God created them to be, and that was what? A temple, a place for him to dwell, both personally and corporately. And that's what Jesus has been doing from then until now, and that's what Jesus is going to continue to do until we see him again, till he comes again, as we thought about last week, because he is coming again, right? But he's in process of building together people so that he can live and dwell among them now there's nothing more important for us as a church I believe in 2019 and every year after that one for as long as God is in the process of taking a people here and having them being built together as a place for him to live than that we commit ourselves, yes, to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to loving one another as Jesus loves us. If, if that's not the foundational basis of everything we do, if that's not we're, what we're engaged and committed to, everything else means nothing. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13, where he has that seminal passage on unconditional agape love in the New Testament, and he basically says, look, you can do everything else, you can prophesy, you can do everything, but if you do not have love, you have zilch, you have nothing, nada, in kingdom terms. Paul has another great passage in Ephesians. Everybody's reading from Ephesians, Ephesians, not Ephesians, Ephesians. Jim sent out a great email yesterday to all the worship community in the church and shared another beautiful passage earlier uh, from this book. It's a great book. I've got to preach this book sometime. But he says this in Ephesians chapter 3. You, 
talking to the people of God again now. You being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the saints to grasp. Now look at these words. I mean, these are uh, mind-blowing words. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. You want to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God? Get in touch with the love of Christ. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. From Him, the whole body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When we stay rooted and established in God's love, we will receive the power together to lay hold of that love for each other and be filled with that love toward each other. We will be able to experience the dimensions of God's love. It's width, length, height, and depth. That love will sur- that surpasses knowledge will surpass the knowledge of our own stuff, our own offenses, our own inadequacies, our own failures, and those of others that we're in fellowship with, that we're in communion with. As we each do our part, and the part that we've each been called to do is, in part, to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And when that happens, the church of Jesus Christ is built together, and it rises to become that holy temple where God's presence dwells. The second thing I want you to see is this. That was the new command. In the second part of verse 34, Jesus gives us a unique paradigm, and this is it. He he says that we are to love as I have loved you. Jesus, you know what I love about Jesus here is he doesn't just lay a new command on the disciples and then say, see you guys, now you go figure that out. You go figure out what it looks like to love one another as I have loved you. Can you imagine what would have happened if you'd done that? Just think for a moment about these guys he called to be disciples. How far would they have got trying to figure out how to love one another the way Jesus loved them? And how far would they have got in actually succeeding in doing that? Not far, I don't think, in either camp. Why? Because these are the kinds of people he called. Peter. An ignorant and impetuous fisherman. Never found a foot he couldn't stick in his own mouth. (laughs) Secondly, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, never saw a critic that they didn't want to smoke with fire from heaven. Thirdly, Matthew, the tax collector who we heard so eloquently about earlier this morning, never found a tax payer that he couldn't rip off to his own benefit. (laughs) Thomas, the serial doubter, Never heard an eyewitness testimony that he didn't reject. And the whole bunch of them constantly competing and squabbling with one another about who is going to be first, who is going to be best, who is going to be closest in the kingdom. These were the people that Jesus called to himself. They were not spiritual giants. They were not even godly people. 
till God made them such. Now, you may think I'm being a bit unfair to those guys, and maybe I am. I don't think too far, though. Love one another in their own strength? I don't think so. Can we love one another as Jesus loved us in our own strength and from our own resource? I don't think so. The good news is that Jesus didn't just leave them with a new command. He provided a paradigm. He gave them a model, an example of how to love. He said, you're to love one another as I have loved you. And then instead of leaving them stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out what that looked like, he gave a demonstration of the light of his love, a new paradigm, a new example for them to follow. And this is what we read in John 13 prior to the verse verses 13, uh, 34, and 35, where John records what Jesus did, and this is it. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I am your Lord and teacher, now that I, rather, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done. That you should do as I have done. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. And here's that two-letter word again. If. You will be blessed. We all want the blessing. We all want to be under the spout where the glory pours out, right? We all want to be blessed. You will be blessed if you do them. Washing the disciples' feet was the perfect example of how God calls those that are part of the kingdom community to love one another. The paradigm Jesus provides takes, those that are beyond, <clears throat> be, takes us beyond just attitude and into action. We need to have the right attitude. We need to have the right disposition shaped by God's love. But it can't stop there. It didn't for Jesus it powered him into action. And the paradigm he provided was one not just of attitudinal alignment with God, but action, fulfilling his purpose, empowered by the love of God, and loving others the way that he has loved us. You know, these disciples, they, if you read the record there in the Gospels, they experience countless examples of Jesus loving them. Not just this one. Over and over in his relationship with them, he demonstrated loving commitment to each of them by befriending them, by calling them, 
by forgiving them, by encouraging them, by trusting them, by commissioning them, by protecting them. They had been loved by him and how? This now is the way that we are to love each other. As Jesus' disciples, those who are being, being built together in him, we're to follow Jesus' example and love as he loved. What does that mean? It means that we're not only to maintain that attitude of love for each other that binds us together in oneness, it also means that we act toward one another with love. And that has to be, that has to be coupled with humility as well because Jesus washing the disciples' feet was an amazing paradigm of love in action, but it also was incredible humility on his part, taking the dirty feet of his disciples as the Lord of the universe and washing their feet. And those two things are coupled together. And when that happens, it strengthens us. It builds us up in our relationships with each other. It builds us up as a church. We begin to become the kind of community that God wants to shape and wants to live in. So it's not just words. It's not just rhetoric, but it's reality. It's not just pious platitudes. It's powerful actions. They may be very simple, but when they're, when they're infused with the love of God and we treat one another in a way that's empowered by God's love, they're significant. They have a significant impact. John writing in his first letter said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brother, brothers. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. It's easy to love with words and tongue. It takes God to love with action and truth. In the same letter, he said, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, and I referred to this earlier, cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's a pretty stunning statement. If you do not have the capacity to love your brother and sister in Christ, forget the idea that you're loving God. Anyone who does not love his brother and or sister whom he has seen cannot now remember, these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not just John. Cannot love God whom he has not seen. But acts of love have a cost attached to them. They don't come cheap. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And as John said, he laid down his very life for them and for us. He calls us to do the same. Only he could make the atoning sacrifice for our sin, obviously. But what John is saying here is that in the same way, we are to walk in love and humility, to prefer one another, to lay down our lives for one another, with the attitudes that we exhibit, with the actions that we take. The unique paradigm of the kingdom of God is a selfless, sacrificial paradigm of love. Jesus expressed it in service to others, to his disciples. But you know how he did it? 
He did it through the power and enabling of the Holy Spirit. Because we know in Ephesians, in Philippians 2, rather, that Jesus set aside, as it were, his divine prerogatives. And he came, and he came as a man. And he was obedient, Paul says, even unto death, unto the death of the cross. But in the lead up to that statement, Paul makes it clear that we are to defer to one another and that we're to love one another is the way that Jesus, in the same way that Jesus did. And it's the Spirit of God that empowered Christ. There's a reason he needed to be anointed with the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River when he was baptized. There was need, a reason he needed to be empowered by the Spirit when he went into and came out of that time of testing in the wilderness prior to being launched into his earthly ministry. There's a reason why Jesus depended on the enabling of the Holy Spirit to do those things that God entrusted to him to do in the purpose that he had come to fulfill. And the same is true for us. If we're going to love as Jesus loves us, it's going to require the enabling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that. Why do you think the first fruit in the list in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 of the fruits of the Spirit is love? And if you look at that in the original, as some scholars have uh, uh, done and made the point, that is as if all those other fruits have their origin in and emanate from the first. And that's not surprising because in 1 John 4, 8, we're told that God is love. This is his very nature. This is the essence, the core of who he is. Lastly, I want you to see this. There's a clear message. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Authentic living stones being built together into a spiritual house means believers loving one another as they've been loved by Jesus so that that clear message can be sent to the world around. You want a, an evangelistic strategy that's going to be effective? Everybody's always after the latest effective evangelistic strategy. What's the technique? How do we do it? Here it is. When we love one another the way Jesus has loved us, the message goes out with power and it does not return void. Not everybody will respond to it, of course. We know that to be the case. But many will. Jesus said it's the genuine expression of his love lived out among his children that will cause the watching world to perceive that they belong to him. They won't first perceive that we belong to God because they've taken out a theological dictionary and done an analysis of our theology. Or they've looked at the programs we have in the church and evaluated them, and that's not how it works. Not in kingdom terms. It's the love of Christ manifest in and among a people that causes the world to know, hey, there's somebody else dwelling with those people. This is not a religious club these guys belong to. Something's happening there. And it's called the presence of God. You know, these disciples Jesus was speaking to that I had some fun with earlier, let's balance out that, uh, let's balance that out a little bit right now. These guys went on to become, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, 
a group of people transformed who turned the then known world upside down. That's the testimony written in the book of Acts. This group of men and women, imperfect, broken, flawed in so many ways, were transformed by the love of God and they became a transforming community that turned the world upside down. And that world, by the way, was every bit as much, if not more, hostile and hostile to the cause of Christ than the one we live in now. Check out church history and see what these guys had to deal with in the context in which they lived. We have it easy in this country compared to what they were living with and dealing with then. Right? They sent a clear message to the world. And lives were changed. They became a corporate temple of the living God. When people saw authentic live, love lived out, where people cared for one another, encouraged one another, strengthened one another, many realized that something was being built that was different, and they wanted in on it. As disciples, we're called to do the same and make Jesus known to the world around us. But it's contingent, guys, upon us loving one another. It's not going to happen if we don't. If it's not automatic. Where petty competition, destructive division, selfish rivalry, Personal agendas characterize the church instead of the love of Christ in action where there's mutual commitment and unbroken unity. The world will not see that we belong to him and that he's present and living among us. They'll be attracted to other buildings. They'll be attracted to other temples. And there's a lot of other buildings and temples that comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and I'm using that metaphorically now, that people can be attracted to rather than the household of God, which is where he wants them. However, the good news is if we love one another, if we forgive one another, if we serve one another, if instead of demanding from one another, and complaining about one another, we serve one another, we, we, we cheer for one another. If we forgive instead of harboring a grudge, if we collaborate together instead of competing, then Jesus will be revealed and his message will go forth and we will see what we've not seen and to a degree that we want to see it will be that place where God dwells. So, as we begin this new year, I believe God is calling us to recognize that this is what's going on. And sometimes I think in the church, not just in this church, but in the church generally, we take this for granted. That God is in the process of building us together to become something. And that something is something where God lives, where God dwells, where his spirit is present. If we're going to become that holy temple, though, and that spiritual house God desires for us to be, we've got to be rooted and established in love. We can't take that off-ramp. There isn't one when it comes to this. 
We have to be a people that obey that command. And we will do it through the unction of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't leave us, as I said earlier, to try and figure this out and do it in our own resources. We, w- we would fail immediately. But God has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We are his temple personally. You are the temple of the living God. You have treasure inside your earthen vessel, inside your jar of clay. It's the presence of the living God through the Holy Spirit. We have that as a corporate reality, as a people. As we do, Jesus will dwell among us. We'll grow up into him. We'll build one another up. And we'll make him known to all kinds of people in the greater Portland area. And although many will not respond, there will be those who are touched and transformed by the love of God. And they will come into the reality of relationship with him and with one another that we already enjoy.